Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the third lecture in the Mythgard Academy 2015 guest lecture series. We are very glad to have all of you here today, and we are very glad to welcome our special guest, author David Brin. I will introduce him momentarily after I give you a few announcements. And I hope that all of you here will come back for the other lectures in this series. In August, we have Dr. Amy Sturgis talking about Star Wars. In September, Tom Shippey on mythology. And in October, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit on the imagination. So I hope that you come back for all three of those lectures as well. Please do check out MythGuard.org for the other initiatives that are going on at MythGuard right now for the great classes and upcoming events. The MythGuard Academy free class that's running right now is on Tolkien's Lays of Beleriand, and you are welcome to attend that. There's also the Silmarillion film project going on and the Lord of the Rings online. But perhaps the most exciting announcement is that the fall courses are now available, and you can sign up for fall courses. We have three classes in the fall. Dr. Sturgis's Star Wars course, Mike Drought's Anglo-Saxon course, and John Garth's Tolkien and the Great War. So a really wonderful lineup of courses. So please do go over there and sign up for those classes. Okay, now I'm going to introduce David Brin and then welcome him to speak to us. So David Brin is a scientist, a speaker, a technical consultant, and an author who is known worldwide. His novels have been New York Times bestsellers, winning multiple Hugo, Nebula, and other awards. And perhaps you've read some of his best-known novels, perhaps Earth, The Postman, and Hugo Award winners, Star Tide Rising, and The Uplift, War, or other of his works. So do check out his websites. If you haven't read, read his novels yet, please do so. So now I am very happy to welcome David Brin. David, thank you. If I could give you all a big hug, um, I'd be a lot richer than I am right now because I'd have a wonderful new technology to share. But uh, nice to uh, nice to be chatting with you all out there. Um, we'll try to keep things interesting. One of the um, things I was asked to talk about is can science fiction change the world? And uh, I also am intrigued by how many of the topics that are being presented at Mythgard have to do with Tolkien, who um, is uh, of great interest to me. I have a, probably the most infamous of my essays um, online and Salon magazine was one that uh, compared uh, two romantic writers uh, uh, or creators, George Lucas and Tolkien. And both of them have the romantic impulse, which a lot of fantasy has. Not all fantasy, but most fantasy. It takes a romantic view of uh, storytelling. But with Tolkien being very different than Star Wars in certain crucial ways. So perhaps we'll get to that. But um, as you can see from my office with the um, cover to Sundiver in the background, I do a fair amount of the other side of the force, the science fiction. Um, and the question is, you know, often asked, you know, what is the difference between science fiction and fantasy? What is science fiction for that matter? If you look across the last 6,000 years for which we have evidence, the um, it's clear that human beings have been storytellers for a very long time. The the notion that we've uh, we've enthralled each other, the uh, people by the campfire, uh, the storytellers by the campfire, uh, would exercise these little nubs above our eyes, which are called the prefrontal lobes. These are the nubs that enable us to peer into the future, to imagine ourselves under other circumstances, um, either fantastic circumstances or just, you know, will I make it if I try to run this yellow light? Einstein called this exercise the Gedanken experiment or the thought experiment. The Bible refers to Moses having lamps on his brow, which I've always been found intriguing as potentially a reference to the prefrontal lobes. So these are exercised when we tell stories or when we hear stories. 
and the difference between writing a fictional tale that someone buys and opens up or walks on a screen and a lot of the other ways in which human beings lie is that uh, the storyteller says hey this is a lie but participate for a little while suspend your disbelief participate with me for a little while so it's a very honest form of lying about things that never were and probably never will be the tradition of storytelling is very very interesting as you you know if you ever watch the series about Joseph Campbell or read his books he contends that there is a very standard fundamental archetype to the great mythic tales all of which had elements of the fantastic uh, up until about 200 years ago uh, when things suddenly changed uh, you started getting um, people like Thackeray and 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 um, Cervantes writing novels about the actual era that they're in without anything fantastic no, any fantastic elements but talking about people of their insular time and I've often wondered why this shift happened about 200 years ago why the sudden shift over to huge popularity of stories set in what people deemed the here and now for them and it occurred to me there was one possible reason and that is that for the previous thousands of years life was always very tentative and contingent and dangerous for the average person you might go to bed one night uh, with six children and a spouse and and uh, things are going well by the next evening uh, they might all be dead things were very tentative and very worrisome day to day in life but even though there might be invasions or the king might die tomorrow there would always be a king the social circumstance in which you found yourself was relatively constant suddenly around a couple hundred years ago you started having a reversal of this situation you started getting a situation in which daily life became more predictable sure it was still dangerous but it was very likely if you had four kids that three of them would likely see adulthood your own opportunities to make plans two three four years in advance improved and yet the society that you're in kept changing the society that you're in might not even have a king next year um, this is my big complaint about Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen is that Lizzie is this fantastic character who's rambunctious and stands up for what's right in the context of the class system of the 1840s in, in, in England but she never extends this anger over injustice or refusal to accept injustice to questioning the conditions social conditions that she took for granted even though life for young women and daughters of gentlemen and all of that had been very different just 40 years before and would be very different 40 years in the future and she could have participated in appraising this process of change but there's not a hint of that in Jane Austen it's merely being spunky and standing up for justice in the context of that particular frozen moment of time well, why why did everything change well you know I think that it was because the society started becoming uncertain while your life personal life started gaining some predictability and this changed the mythology that people wanted to read that people wanted to hear and it became much more close in much more realistic much more about people like them and that's not a bad thing 
that's not a bad thing because all of this um, talk about um, you know all of the way in which modern realistic literature explored issues that were very personal to the reader well you know there's 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 nothing wrong with that that's fine the fantastic started ebbing out of literature and the fantastic had always been there you know from Oedipus to the Odyssey you know uh, to Virgil um, taking Dante through the through hell the fantastic had always been there but the rhythms were always romantic and were always fantasy and if you look at fantasy in the olden times and if you look at co most comic books superhero stories and if you look at most fantasy stories today they are clearly cousins they are often about an ubermensch, to borrow from Nietzsche, uh, a, a super being, a person who was a chosen one, who stands out from the hoi polloi of the time by dint of internal qualities that are not just quantitatively slightly different than average, but qualitatively different than average. Uh, I have a I have a book called Star Wars on Trial. It got me the second most hate mail of anything I ever did. The most hate mail I ever got had to do with a Salon Magazine article um, called Why Johnny Can't Code, suggesting that um, the fact that our computers don't have BASIC on them anymore is hurting our civilization. That, that got me hate mail. But um, in Star Wars on Trial, I was the prosecuting attorney, and I called witnesses, various essayists, sages and reviewers and critics and, and all of that, as prosecution witnesses in favor of certain indictments, seven indictments against George Lucas's Star Wars universe. And Lucas's, uh, one of Lucas's um, novelizers, Matthew Woodring Stover, was the defense attorney. And he called witnesses to defend against the, all these accusations. Accusations like that Star Wars is sexist or that it, it, uh, it's not science fiction or that it uh, promotes relatively evil values. Personally, I think the most evil character in the history of human mythology is Yoda. Look at the deaths that he directly or indirectly causes. I can see some people steam coming out of their ears right now in anger. Come on, calm down. We're about to reissue Star Wars on Trial with some, some small updates, but the best update is on the cover. Uh, we weren't allowed to use any Lucas characters, any Star Warsian characters because those are copyrighted, but the cover shows George Lucas <laughs> sitting in a witness box. I really like that. But this latest version is the Force Awakens edition, and it shows a shadow on the wall that has a Darth Vader mask outlined, but two big circles right here. Ooh, so clever. Uh, but in Star Wars on Trial, one of the things that I point out is the allegory of the ship. In Star Wars, the ship is the same as the method of travel has always been throughout the history of fantasy. Achilles or the knight with their charger or their chariot, which has only room on it for um, your squire, your Sancho Panza squire or the driver of the chariot. Just the two of you, you and your sidekick. Lucas openly admits that he based Star Wars on World War I fighter pilots. Silk scarf, you know, the, above all the grunting, wrestling humanity down below. This is the vehicle of a demigod. And if you read Homer, this is what... It was. I mean, Achilles slays 200 Spartans with one stroke, 100 with another, and the river weeps. But that's him being an ubermensch demigod, and, and, and only Hector is good enough to stand up to him 
and even he can't stand up to Achilles. This ship in Star Trek is very different. The ship in Star Trek is not a fighter plane, it's a naval vessel. It's a great big large naval vessel and it is all about the crew. Uh, several hundred people, aliens, and the captain is not a chosen one demigod who is organically and genetically different than everyone else. In Star Wars, the only thing a normal person can do is choose which side of a mutant human family of force wielders that he can die for. Uh, Luke's side or his father's side. But they're all in, descended from this mutant family from Naboo. It's weird. But on the Enterprise or Voyager, the captain is merely way, way above average and has to call upon crewmates, sometimes just someone in a red shirt, to participate in a team effort that gets the job done. And the ship is large enough to convey with it cargo, passengers, and one of those passengers is the Federation. The Federation itself, its laws, its rules, its mistakes, its, its better graces, these are topics in various episodes of Star Trek. The Federation goes along its disgust, its possible error modes, its possible ways of being right. These become topics because of the naval vessel motif. There is no room for the Republic to ride with Luke on a little snub X-wing fighter plane. The topic of the Republic is never brought up. The Republic never does anything. Institutions never do anything. They don't even do anything wrong. They don't even make any mistakes. It, they're just irrelevant because it's all about demigods. That's why I maintain that Star Wars is a fantasy. Because to me, science fiction is not about science. It's not about science at all. Only one in ten or so of uh, the science fiction authors out there, even who write science, sciencey science fiction, only about one in ten have a scientific background, as I as I have. Some of the greatest hard science fiction today is being written by English majors like Kim Stanley Robinson, Nancy Kress, Greg Bear, who um, learned that you can do the science by finding scientists and asking them a bunch of questions. You can do that, but you have to care. You have to care about it. But the main thing is that almost all science fiction authors uh, are imbued with history. That's what we read. We're enthralled by human history, by the great, poignant, sad, uh, irritating, uh, vexing drama that from the caves of Lascaux all the way through the, the cuneiform clay records of people behaving very, very badly and then people behaving badly and then people behaving badly and then people behaving badly but somehow learning and somehow you know five steps forward, three to the side, four steps back, somehow climbing upward in maturity and ability. That's an amazing story. It's the amazing story. And science fiction is the literature that toys with that story. It, 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 it does alternate, it, it plays with alternate histories. It plays with the alternate possibilities, how things might have been different, and extends this drama using these prefrontal lobes by looking forward into the future, extending it. It should not have been called science fiction. It should have been called speculative history. That would have been a better name. So the point is that science fiction posits the possibility that things can change, be different 
than they were and is fascinated by how humans respond to change. Now, in cheap modern sci-fi, you get dystopias and apocalypses. Now, look, I've done apocalypse. Hey, you know, I got a movie. Post-apocalyptic uh, story of the postman got turned into a movie by Kevin Costner. Uh, don't ask me about Kevin Costner. But most post-apocalyptic and dystopian science fiction these days, especially in movies, is merely laziness. It gives you a great way to throw your heroes into dire jeopardy without ever having to justify why they don't get help. And those of you who want to read about that, um, Google my name, David Brin, and Idiot Plot. And you'll find a very popular essay about that explains why we have so many apocalypses and so many dystopias these days. And they preach a lesson that nothing can be done, we're all doomed, and no institution can ever be trusted, and your neighbors are all idiots and sheep. And the only people you can rely upon are a couple of pals as you fight against Big Brother. Well, that can be a good story. I mean, I've done those. But to have that be your automatic reflex, that's kind of poisonous, actually. Real science fiction ponders the possibility that we might go to hell despite good efforts by sincere people. Or we might, because of sincere efforts by good people, plus maybe some technology, whatever, we might succeed despite malevolence or bad mistakes. That's doing Gagankin experiment. That's doing thought experiments. That's trying to probe the path we're heading down with sticks of our imagination. A path that's strewn with landmines and punchy stakes and snake pits and, and, and terrible disasters waiting for us disastrous possibilities that might help explain why we seem so alone in the universe. Because so many other species got caught up or tripped by these mistakes. And perhaps we might be the first to get past them. And if so, won't it be because of science fiction? Poking sticks in the path that we're racing toward? Tell me how fantasy does that. How does it ever teach you anything actually valid about good or evil or about our potential for evading mistakes? I don't mean to cause a tussle here because obviously a lot of the folks who are attending Mythgard really like fantasy. Well, you know, I do too. I'm a big fan of Tolkien. Tolkien, if you read my essay online, Joe David Brin and Tolkien, or David Brin and Star Wars, but in my essay about Tolkien, I point out that he's the really honest, romantic, mystical fantasy writer. He holds change under deep suspicion. He rails against change. He admits the change is coming in Middle-earth. So he poses two possible changed worlds. The elves and their beauty are going to go away. But there is the industrial, urban, grinding, clanking, smoking future of industrial Mordor versus the future of a somewhat democratized shire that nevertheless has fine rural yeoman virtues. And if the great old days of fine noble lords and ladies is going to have to go away, he'd rather it go to the yeoman of the shire than to the clanking, grunting industry. Well, you know, he, A, he's honest about it. B, he's even more honest. Tolkien himself said that the whole crisis in Middle-earth and the disasters were the fault of the elves, ultimately. But even though he stacks the deck, Sauron has red glowing eyes, and orcs are mined out of the ground, and 
Oh yeah, that's Peter Jackson. Despite all that, he's still honest. And what's more, his anti-modernism came by him honestly. Because as one of your future speakers is going to talk about, Tolkien and the Great War, the fact that he was at the Battle of Ypres and saw the flower of his generation mowed down at the Battle of the Somme. Well, if, if I had seen that, it's possible that I would have rejected modernity as well. Lucas has no such excuse. His rejection of modernity, his um, open contempt for democracy, which he has stated openly in interviews, this is, um, well, that's ungrateful. I mean, this civilization has been very, very, very good to George Lucas. It gave him all the toys. Uh, it gave him enough money so that he could be a Medici for our era and uh, hire the world's greatest artists, some of them, to reify his vision. But you'll notice that in the on the Star Wars websites and all that sort of thing, almost no one complained when he sold the rights to Disney. I mean, you would normally expect fury over such a thing, but almost everyone was relieved. In any event, I've been poking at you for a while here by talking about the difference between fantasy, which cleaves tightly to what Joseph Campbell talked about in the story of myth. And generally has a tendency to accept the, no the notion that despite all the adventures and the wars and the deaths and the drama that are portrayed in the fantasy novel or film, the fundamentals of society will stay the same. All right, so a Targaryen is going to bring her, her dragons and reclaim the Iron Throne from the usurpers. She may even democratize the council a bit. But feudalism is going to stay. And I know George Martin. He's trying to rouse you to hate that system. And a lot of people respond to Tolkien or Game of Thrones or Dune by saying, oh, if only I could live under those circumstances. Really? Really? Well, I'm sorry. Science fiction is not all highfalutin great ideas. But at its best, it posits the possibility that our grandchildren might be different from us, that our children might learn from our mistakes and invent new mistakes of their own that we explore by sticking that stick into the ground. I mean, what's probably the greatest science fiction story of all time? George Orwell's 1984. Why? Because it prevented its own scenario from coming true. 1984 is not going to come true, largely because millions of millions of people on both the left and the right girded themselves after reading 1984 to say, ah, I'm going to spend my life, spending part of my time across my life preventing Big Brother. And the difference between a decent person of the moderate left and a decent person of the moderate right, notice I'm excluding the dogmatists, is that a decent person of the moderate left is concerned about Big Brother coming at us, taking over from the direction of um, conniving oligarchs and faceless corporations. Person of the def decent right is concerned about conniving uh, about oligarchs, I mean Big Brother coming and taking over from the direction of snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. To which the answer is actually, duh, 
Big Brother could come from any of those directions. And some that science, only science fiction has pointed out as well, that aren't, that don't fit on the truly insane, drooling, stupid, lobotomizing left-right political axis, a metaphor that we should be dropping, if for no other reason, because it's French. That's a good enough reason to drop it. But the whole notion that we're all girded by a science fiction story to watch out for that failure mode. And that way, if we have a tyranny in the future, it probably won't be like Big Brother because they dare not shove an iron boot in our face. Too many people are going to have too much technology, um, nanotech and designer drugs. Uh, the aristocracy won't survive. No, no, it'll be more like Huxley's 1980, I mean, the Brave New World, where the, um, the tyranny is masked by a velvet glove and pleasure and um, maybe even fooling us into thinking we still have elections. A much more subtle type of tyranny. But we are warned against that as well. Perhaps we'll gird ourselves. That's the utility of science fiction. And that's the attractive feature. Now, I'd have a lot more money right now if I wrote the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, people who have millions of fans who say, make me feel exactly the way you made me feel last time. Those, those authors have a lot more money than I have. I ain't weeping for myself. My fans have a tendency to say, take me someplace I've never been before. And that's a more difficult trip. That's why I produce books more slowly. And that is the crux aim of the better end of science fiction. And the best end of fantasy, I'll admit that, is to take you someplace you've never been before and have you go, huh, I never thought of it that way before. Terry Pratchett, for example. Um, all right, so I've been talking about how science fiction can change the world. I'm sure some people were surprised because one of the ways that is talked about in TV shows, and I appear on a lot of them, is that science fiction inspires young people to go into science and to invent new things. And sure, that's terrific. I get some lovely mail from people who say, oh, you inspired me to go into, into science. And I say, thanks a lot for making me feel old. That's terrific. Um, here at UCSD, we've established, that's the University of California at San Diego. Um, that's in the lower left corner of the United States where everything loose rolls down into the corner. Um, here at UCSD, we've established the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. Look it up. And uh, one of the things we're doing is uh, doing some of the testing for the X Prize. Look up the X Prize. It's one of the greatest things greatest things, uh, different prizes to entice people to help solve world problems. Well, um, the Clark Center is helping to judge the tricorder challenge, the tricorder X Prize challenge, to develop um, methodologies so that you open a small box and there anybody who's not a physician would be able to use just a few, a few advanced tools to diagnose hundreds of ailments. Um, and we're on the edge of this amazing era when um, you won't need to trek if you're a poor villager hundreds of miles to get to the nearest doctor. Instead, some, um, some nearby uh, bush nurse would have one of these boxes and be able to connect to the internet and all of that. It's very exciting. So yes, does science fiction inspire? Change the world by inspiring? Sure, sure, that's great. But because a lot of TV shows talk about that aspect of things, um, I emphasize that the least. And that's a 
that's a hint of personality. My blog is called Contrary Brin. So whatever happens to be discussed, you know, popular under discussion at any given moment, I have a tendency to poke at it. And um, it's one reason why I don't have any friends. I'm joking. Uh, okay, so I think we've um, gone through the topic. And what I'd like to do is, is open it up for questions. So uh, I'm not having I'm not having any success here seeing any questions. So I'm going to ask our lovely hostess to chime in and let me know. Yes, I'm here, David. There is a little questions bar on your menu. On and you can actually undock that so it pops out. But I can I also read you questions as they pop up if you would prefer I, I, I see questions at I, I, the bar. I just don't see any questions. There's a little, in the right-hand side, there's a little tiny right angle with an arrow. If you hover your mouse over that, it will say undock. And you can yes, undock well, that I have I have done that thing, and I see no questions. All right, why, there are a few here, so I can read them to you. Would that be helpful? Why don't you Why don't you do that thing? Okay. I will do that thing. Well, the first is not a question, just a comment. Denise Roper is here. Welcome, Denise. I don't know if you are familiar with her Harry Potter book. Um, she just says that she read Star Wars on trial several years ago and really enjoyed it. Oh, well, that's, that's terrific. Great. Thank you, Denise. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like this whole business of derivative works because then you can explore things from different angles and, uh, and I think Harry Potter is a very rich universe. Sure, it follows some of the tropes of fantasy um, that J.K. Rowling grew up with and that she liked very much. But you'll notice that still, Harry himself is a decent guy with a, with an egalitarian soul. Um, uh, some people are fans of Eliezer Yudkowsky's uh, spin-off called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, uh, which I have also quite enjoyed. Um, but that one sort of decrypts the whole fantasy thing um, rather, rather than uh, doing alternate riffs on it. Let's have another question. All right, this is um, totally off topic. Erica wants to know your cat's name and whether you have other pets. There, <laughs> cat is, is in the back corner there, there. there, I'm petting her now. There you go, Kitty. Well, she thinks her name is Kitty, but her name is Muon. Um, get the pun. Huh? The previous, uh, my wife's previous cat was leapt on. Uh, so you know, it's a, these are science names, but in the case of on, well, it's and on and on and on. But but she thinks her name is Kitty, but as if she ever answers to it, she's a cat. Now we just alas lost our 14-year-old gold retriever. Hmm. Now he came when he was called. Hmm. Okay, all right. Shelby Seymour asks, does fantasy also not show us the path we are headed? Game of Thrones attempts to show us the power of politics. Would you consider that a warning through fantasy? No. I'm sorry, but it, all, all, Game of Thrones shows us what happens when you have the kind of brutally horrible system that 99% of our ancestors lived under called feudalism. We had a revolution. We've had a series of revolutions, the American Revolution, the French Revolutions. These were sub-rebellions sub within the major revolution called the Enlightenment. And truly, the only thing to learn from Game of Thrones politically is off with their heads, unless they're willing to help us set up you know, all the, all the things that we've learned how to do the hard way including schools, including courts that can, that can throw a lord into jail for behaving the way any of them behave in Game of Thrones, even the good ones. No, I, I don't accept that. I think what Game of Thrones shows us is how bloody awful it all was, and um, with some exaggeration, and should be girding us 
to be revol re reborn revolutionaries, militant, even moderately militant, in an, uh, maybe in the middle of the left-right axis, but totally off-axis militant about not letting those days ever come back. And there are people who are trying to make them come back. There's an oligarchic putsch going on right now in the United States where there are people trying to reinstate feudalism. Never mind. So, I, sorry, I disagree. We've got a couple other genre-related questions that follow up nicely from that. Um, Erica Henson says, it can be fruitful to think of Harry Potter as science fiction rather than fantasy. What are your thoughts on that designation? Well, I do wish that um, J.K. Rowling had people in her circle who would ask the kinds of questions that provoked Eliezer Yudkowsky to do a completely science fictional version of Harry Potter uh, in the methods of rationality. I think she's smart enough. I just don't think that it occurred to her. Um, for instance, this whole business of, you know, how the magic is working, why spells in sort of faux, false Latin mm -hmm. work, even though those spells are descended from Atlantis from 6,000 years before there ever was a Latin language. Well, you know, Harry, Harry Potter, uh, there could have been Harry Potter and the search for the Atlantean computer. Now, now that that would have been a terrific spin-off. He decides to, you know, work with Hermione and and the Weasleys to hunt down the computer that's using quantum effects to answer everybody's spells, and that actually waving this thing around doesn't do anything, but the computer responds uh, and makes things happen. All right, well, that's me as a sci-fi guy because my curiosity about the situation does not stop with saying, wouldn't it be cool if I were one of the inborn ubermensch, you know, I had midichlorians in my blood to use the force and all of that. Well, I'd like people to react to that with, with hackles. I mean, you know, we built this civilization. We built it, not the demigods and not the lords. And we're the ones who are making the movies. We're the ones who are making the fun. We're the ones who just sent a probe past freaking Pluto. And that was just the capstone of the best year of humanity and expanding into space ever, even including the moon landings. This year, we got wonderful words from Mercury, Venus, Earth-sensing, um, the moon, comets landing on a comet, Mars, a comet passing Mars, Ceres, Pluto, and we've discovered a thousand planets outside our solar system just in this last year. And you're not jazzed by this? Isn't this more exciting? I, yeah, I'm thinking of, 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 of Tolkien. How wonderful it would be to have a palantir, this glassy object to sit on my table, whereupon I could see faraway places and converse with faraway beings. Excuse me, don't you have that? The thing that makes the palantir, ooh, is the fact that only five or six people on Middle Earth have it. The problem with science is it's democratic. It gives the wonders to everybody. And that's why in my novel, Kiln People, K-I-L-N, about clay people, when, uh, you know, it's about you, you have this magnificent machine where you can put your head on your home copier and out steps one or two or three perfectly good clay copies of you that are good for one day. At the end of 24 hours, they melt, but you can download their memories before that. So you can be in four places in a given day and recongeal, and you've had four days. You've gotten everything done. Well, the natural reflex would be to say, okay, only the aristocracy has these, and they've got them in secret. Ooh, Michael Crichton story. 
That's just not how I operate. I wanted to see how civilization would change if everybody got these machines and everybody was making copies of themselves every day. Because that's what we do. And we're more interesting than any feudal kingdom ever was. You, a citizen of, that, of this civilization, are more interesting than any superhero comic book character. Well, all right, a couple of them are interest, more interesting than you or you. But not you. You're more interesting even than Iron Man. You know who I'm talking about. Any other questions? Now, this was also, well, this topic you're saying right now was also the thesis of your book in 1998, your nonfiction work, The Transparent Society, yes? That you were arguing that surveillance is here to stay, but the question is which direction we point it, whether it's only Big Brother pointing it at us or whether we get to point it back at Big Brother. Is that sort of a fair summary of the question you pose in that book? Yes, well, the Transparent Society won the Freedom of Speech Award from the American Library Association back in the year 2000. It's um, my nonfiction book, and it's resulted in an awful lot of things, gigs distracting me from writing science fiction. It's pointing out what actually enabled us to have all these toys, to have all this science, and to have all the goodies and, and the freedom has been reciprocal accountability. If someone tries to bully you, you can hold them accountable, especially if they do it breaking the law. We're all upset because the NSA is looking at us. All right, if, there, if it's one-way vision, then we should be upset. That leads to Big Brother. But there's a solution, and it's not hiding from the NSA. That's not going to work. Forbid it, you try forbidding them from looking, even if you can enforce the law, they'll just take those methods somewhere else. You ever play the game Whack-A-Mole at the amusement park? You whack down one mole, another one pops its heads up? No. The way to stay free, and even maintain a little bit of privacy, is to look back. You answer surveillance, which is sur, means looking down from above, with surveillance, S-O-U-S, valence. Look up my name and surveillance, S-O-U-S, valence, which means looking back at power from below. Sure, it's hard to do well, but it's what we've been doing for 200 years. We've been getting better at it, and it will never be even between the elites and the people. So the other thing we do is we break up the elites, sick them on each other. That's why we have government, to have an elite that's equal in power to the rich and the mighty. And we're supposedly sicking them on each other, but they'll always try to collude. So we make other elites, like non-governmental organizations, you know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the ACLU, to check on them. Keep the game going, keep the revolution going. Keep the science fiction going, the concept of change, the churn, while continuing to have the fantasy stories. I saw an interview with Frank Herbert um, about uh, David Lynch's movie version of Dune. It's going to shock all of you that both Frank Herbert and I rather liked David Lynch's movie version of Dune. I thought it was terrific. The reason why most people didn't like it was because it made them feel bad. But that was Herbert's world. When you're inside his book, you're inside the characters, and he wrote so well that you actually cared about what Lady Jessica wanted. You actually cared about what Paul Atreides wanted. And it never occurred to you to step back and say, what you want is really evil, and you're the good guys. But in the movie, you're detached from them. And you realize that in Dune, the only reason you're rooting for the Atreides is because the Harkonnen are so awful. But the Atreides are truly awful themselves. Horrible people. And, and Herbert verifies this. That was his intent all along. Do we have any other questions? 
Oh, we have plenty. Following right on that one, Stuart Moore asks sort of to broaden out from what you were just saying, in which directions does science fiction need to instigate or investigate change in today's society? Oh, well, you know, um, we're running an anthology called Chasing Shadows. It'll be out in early 2017 with some wonderful stories in it about this question of how people will deal with a world in which cameras are everywhere. It's sometimes called Brin's Corollary to Moore's Law, that the cameras get smaller, faster, cheaper, more numerous, and better every year at a rate faster than Moore's Law. How are you going to stop vision from flooding the world? The question is, as I depict in my novel existence, will you have eyeglasses as you're going down the street, augmented wear, that you'll be able to control all the data overlays and you'll be able to see into some of the buildings, the commercial ones. You'll be able to see name tags on and will you as a citizen be empowered by this? Or will this empower only elites who walk among us like gods, who can see us, see our name tags, see everything about us, even what we had for breakfast, but we won't be able to look back? Well. Uh, look out for Chasing Shadows in um, early 2017. Uh, it'll be a product of the Arthur Clarke Center at UCSD. But that's an example of the kind of, let's t toss a question out there. Now let's see what kinds of stories people come up with about how people might deal with this future, either well or poorly or some mix or hybrid that has both warning and promise in it. I like that. I like those. Like like the movie Gattaca. That had warning, but also some promise in it as well. Another question. Okay, there are two here who want to sort of question what you were saying about fantasy. So two people who are speaking up to defend fantasy here. Yeah. So Joe Hoffman writes, so here we go. Joe Hoffman writes, Human, humans have attributes we can change, but also good things we would be foolish to change. Science fiction could encourage people like my foolish adolescent self to throw away things that are valuable. Doesn't fantasy have a complementary role to science fiction to encourage the enduring virtues? For example, Sam Gamgee. Now, if you don't mind, I'll read the other one as well, and maybe you can take both of these together. Denise Roper wrote, the society of the fictional world of Game of Thrones does not have the positive influence of Christianity, nor does George R. R. Martin believe in Christianity. He has created a world in which humanity is at its absolute worst. You can't say that medieval Europe was like the world of Game of Thrones. I think Tolkien's Middle-earth shows a very different view of a feudal society, one that has been influenced by Tolkien's own Catholic beliefs. I think both fictional universes do show the truth about our own world. It is fallen. The nature of humanity is sinful. If it were not for the influence of the Catholic Church, medieval Europe might have been more like the world of Game of Thrones. What say well, you? Well, the, 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 I'll deal with the second one um, first by simply saying I absolutely disagree. My ancestors lived in Europe and suffered every single generation from the Catholic Church and its influence on the, on the, on the kings and, and, um, and bishops of that era. Um, it's true that there were Catholics. Um, there were true healers and true um, pastoral uh, men and women who tried their best to um, deal with uh, human tendencies to uh, nastiness. Um, and they would finger wag and chide us into trying to be better. And the chiding almost never worked. Not on the worst people, not on the worst kings, not on the worst abusers, not on the worst wife beaters. What works is what we've done, and that's accountability. When a woman can take her wife beater to the cops, when she has the freedom and power empowerment to get a divorce and a restraining order, that's what stops the white beat wife beaters. Not the finger wagging of some priest. And, and, and that's simple fact. And there were other feudal orders that uh, moderated 
the behavior of 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 lords and 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 feudalists i'm thinking of asoka's um buddhist empire in india for example confucianism finger wag that the uh, mandarin class should should behave well towards the poor below no the only thing that ever made a difference was revolution and accountability as far as sam ganji is concerned of course i weep when he and Frodo finally make it out of the, out of Mount Doom, I think is masterfully written and is a wonderful character. But the fact of the matter is to claim that science fiction recommends abandoning all all decent human traits. Where the heck do you get that straw man? I mean, ideally, we should. What you're playing into is something very common in fantasy and all too common in science fiction and that's called the zero-sum game if you get something new you have to sacrifice something in order to get it and this is a horrible human tendency to assume that games are zero-sum every enemy of the United States since its founding has always nursed this opinion that Americans have their pleasures and they're rich and all of this, therefore they are spoiled. They must have surrendered something, their manliness or their courage or something, in order to get these toys because it's a zero-sum trade-off. And then the enemy would attack and they'd find out to their regret, no, the positive-sum civilization says, I can be both a more gentle man and virile. I can be a loving woman and tough enough to get respect. I can be all of these things. And fantasy tends, tends, tends to go for the zero-sum game. And in order for you to get better technology, you have to sacrifice your Sam Gamgees. No. If you're going to be doing a thought experiment, science fiction thought experiment, that is quality, then you consider the possibility that you're warning, we might lose this human trait if we go down this technological road without thinking about it, like Michael Crichton always warns, tiresomely. But there's the possibility that our children might not do that. They might choose to keep all the good things, the loyalty of Sam Gamgee, the, the, the courage, all those, all those good traits, and even, yes, some deep spirituality, sure, while moving ahead and becoming people who are better at holding themselves and each other accountable and making a better world like Star Trek? Why not have it all? We've proved that we can. Sorry, I went into a bit of a rant there. Um, it's four o'clock, but you know what? Um, I'll hang around for a couple more questions. Okay, I think there are two more that we should discuss here. So Ed Powell wrote in, and this, this follows with what you were saying about what we keep and what we lose. He wrote, in Foundation's Triumph, the characters reject ancient knowledge, a lot of it, and instead choose stability, stagnation. Was this choice yours, Asimov's, being true to the series? I was rather disturbed by this. Oh, yes, it was being true to the series, because otherwise, how the heck are you going to prevent a singularity of some kind? Um, across 25,000 years. I mean, as, uh, Isaac, I was loyal to him. You know, Robin and, and, and Janet Asimov asked me uh, to tie up all the loose ends after Greg Bear and Greg Benford did their parts in the trilogy. And by the way, you can read our three novels separately, although I do recommend reading the whole second Foundation trilogy. Um, Greg Benford's is the one that's least like um, Asimov, but still an interesting story. Greg Bear's is very much like Asimov, an Asimov mystery. And then I tied up all his loose ends, even going back to obscure titles like The Stars Like Dust and Pebble in the Sky and, and Caves of Steel. But in tying it all together, I had to address an issue that Isaac hinted at 
what was always uncomfortable about addressing, and that is how people in the 1990s or the 21st century could make pos intelligent positronic brain robots and never again invent them across 25,000 years and make no progress across that time. And the answer had to be that they were being squelched. But what possible excuse could Daniel Oliva and the robots have for squelching their masters? It had to be something urgent. And I realized that it had to be related to what happened to the earthlings in the caves of steel and the naked sun. Why they became so claustrophobic, agoraphobic. Why they hid in those caves of steel. Something had gotten loose and changed us. And getting us out of that pickle took 25,000 years. Um, all I can say is that Janet Asimov said that of all the foundation and robots books or stories that other people than Isaac have written, mine was her favorite. I tied together loose ends and I did my best to uh, deal with the quandaries that Isaac put forward. And the great thing, and you can see my essay about this online, is that Isaac himself kept arguing with himself. In the 40s, he dreamed of using math to treat human beings as gas molecules and figure out basic laws of sociology. In the 1950s, he realized there would be perturbations that would take the path off course, so he needed, he needed a course correction secret foundation. Later, he realized, oh, I've created a human aristocracy. I don't like that. So he brought the robots in. And now you have not a Roman Empire, but a Chinese Empire in which the um, the the um, what are they called the the, the um, guys who were castrated to be the um, to take care of the harem who were they called you know you know what I'm talking about who, who were they? they they were the eunuchs in general eunuchs 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 uh, yeah eunuch is eunuch uh, and the eunuchs um, the robots become like court eunuchs. They cannot have any children, so they can't create an inherited aristocracy. See? So that was your solution. But now you, re you have reversed the masters and the servants. The masters control all, are few, and all powerful and secret. And the masters, the human beings, are vastly numerous and cheap and have no power and control at all. Wow. So he had to fix that and he came up with this Gaia Galaxia thing. But that had its problems too. And so I think you'll enjoy how I bring everything back around full circle. Whatever. What's the next uh, question? All right, the next will also be the last. We will wrap around and end where we began with Star Wars. So a comment and a question. The comment is from Amy Sturgis, who first just wanted to say thank you to you for being here and to point out to you that she's using Star Wars on trial as one of the texts in Mythgard's Star Wars class this fall. And then Brandon Young just asked if you could say more about Joseph Campbell's influence on George Lucas and Star Wars, and we will end with that. Well, you know, George Lucas made a big deal about how he, he uh, followed the patterns of um, Joseph Campbell, and then he didn't. I mean, sure, the original Star Wars showed a lot of those motifs, and especially The Empire Strikes Back, which everyone agrees is the best one in the series. But then again, all through the 1980s and 90s, there was third movie curse. The second movie in a sci-fi series was always the best, and the third betrayed everything. Well, nothing compared to the betrayal of the, sci of the Star Wars prequels, of course, which had no Campbellian Campbell elements at all. They just didn't make any sense. Um, I love especially in... I think it's the second of the prequels where Yoda orders all the Jedi into a suicide charge. These are the secret agents of the Republic. And he orders them to be shock stormtroops 
that jump into the middle of an arena filled with several hundred thousand armed enemies. And of course they're slaughtered. And Yoda shows up just then with his new army. And nobody among Star Wars fans stops and say, well, well that's a coincidence. He orders the Jedi, who he could not completely control, into a suicide charge so that three-quarters of them are killed, just as he takes delivery of a new, more easy-to-order-around army. This is... That, that evil little green oven met, that frog, is a uh, Kermit relative. I, I, just... Uh, Look at him differently from now on. Oh, by the way, he didn't die in Return of the Jedi. Uh, Luke was ready finally to ask uncomfortable questions. Luke shows up and he says, okay, you said that if I left and saved my friends, everything would go to hell. I left, I saved my friends, I lost my hand, and I, and I, and I, and I did things uh, that, that were useful, and things didn't go to hell. Instead, I found out you lied to me. Why did you lie to me? And what does Yoda do? He goes, <clears throat> after 4,000 years, he happens when he's needed most to go <clears throat> and disappears. Have you ever heard of the old Jedi death fadeaway trick? Ah, is he gone? <laughs> Luke's a great guy, but nobody ever said he was anything but a dim bulb. And having um, incited riot all across the Mythgard community, I will now take my leave of your senses. I wish you all well. Keep thinking. My kitty cat says goodbye as well. Explore. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, David. That was. I wish we were all in a room and we could debate all of these topics face to face together. That would be very exciting. But thank you so much for sharing with us. We appreciate it. I say goodbye to you, and we'll say goodbye to all the audience. And please do remember, everyone, to check in to MissGuard.org to get the dates and times of the upcoming lectures and classes, and come back on August 15th when Dr. Amy Sturgis will talk about Star Wars. All right. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye.